0: I have the honour of bringing you the Bible reading today. If anyone would like a copy of the Bible, we have some up the back. Um, reading from Judges 4 today. Should feel like I need to say that this does come with a graphic content warning. So if you're squeamish, bear with me. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harsheth Hagolim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon river and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking the honor will not be yours for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaninim, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Toba, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Chagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin the king of Hazor and the king of Heba the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty," he said, "please give me some water." She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. "Stand in the tent in the doorway of the tent," he told her, "if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no." But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, And went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. And he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. And Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said. I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her. And there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On the de- on that day God subdued Jabin king of Canaan before the Israelites and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin king of Canaan until they destroyed him this is the word of the Lord
1: Well, good morning again, church. Uh, If you are new to Tungabi Baptist Church, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, It's my first sermon back uh, of the year. It's been a while. Um, It's almost two months that I haven't preached, Um, but it's good to be back. Um, And what a passage to preach on as well. Um, And thanks, Jackie, for that wonderful reading. I think you read that better than a a Hebrew or an Israeli. Um, Those pronounced words were really spot on. Um, But let me pray as I begin uh, and asking God for, for his help. Father, with all the the different messages that we heard this week, help us now to drown that out and hear your word for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as a person, as a pastor and a a preacher who, who encourages people to have faith, I've got to admit that I'm a pretty big skeptic myself. Uh, what I mean that is that in, in, you know, in, in general, I don't eis- easily believe in things that I see or that I hear. For example, if you come to me raving about a really good movie that you saw, uh, chances are that I won't, take, I won't just take your word for it. Uh, for me, that will be your own personal and subjective uh, opinion, I'm the type of person who wants to do my own research, I'll watch every trailer that comes out for it, I'll, uh, I'll read every different reviews that, uh, that, that uh, critiques the, the movie, often I'll, I'll read the negative ones, uh, I want to hear different opinions about it, but even after that I might not be totally convinced, I'll still be dwelling and thinking, do I really want to give up my time and my money to watch this movie? It's not just movies. Uh, If someone suggests a restaurant, I'll be checking out reviews online. If Maybe if you suggest a good mechanic to me or a trustworthy plumber, I won't easily believe your recommendation because that's just how I am. You know, I want to see it or I want to experience it uh, for myself to believe. Sometimes I don't even trust myself, so self-talk and self-motivation don't work uh, easily on me. And so when I was studying and reading Judges 4 this week, I could definitely understand Barak's response to Deborah. Because see in verse 7, see Deborah delivers God's command to him. She says, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, so which is like the uh, two different tribes, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give them into your hands that you will win. And Barak didn't just think and say, oh, great, Lord, I believe you. His response to Deborah is, if you go with me, Deborah, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. He's saying, no, if, if God really told you to tell me that we're going to win against Sisera's army, then come with me, just to be sure. Come with me as a guarantee that we will win. See, I feel the sense of doubt in Barak. He's not, he's not completely faithless. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. He's, he's just trying to be certain. There's a bit of doubt and there's a bit of uh, hesitation in there, in Barak. Because after all, this is life and death situation. Now, we don't know if he's doubting Deborah as the messenger, or maybe he's doubting himself that he can actually lead this battle, or maybe he's actually doubting God. Whatever it is, Barak doesn't buy in that easily. And so as a result, Deborah says, well, I'll go with you, but because of your request, God won't give you the honor in this victory. And again, I I can relate to Barak. I understand the hesitation. And this is why, when I was reading through this, I believe the passage helps us to diagnose our lack of trust in what God says and His promises. Maybe, you know, we are skeptical of what God can do. Maybe we're, we're skeptical of what God says. Maybe we're skeptical of our own relationship with God, and we wonder, why would God do that for me? I'm a nobody. And whatever it is, This passage, I believe, helps us with that. It really answers the question for me, at least. Why is it so hard to put our trust in God? Why is it so hard to believe what he says? And I want to show you three problems, three things why it's so hard to put our complete trust in God. And it will be the same three things, how we can overcome it. And the three things are these. The problem that we see... So often our situation, the way that we hear from God, the way that he speaks to us, and thirdly, the solution that we're given, or or how God works in our lives, right? The problem that we see, the way that we hear, and the solution that we're given. Those are the three problems. Let's begin. So the very first reason we struggle to believe in God is that we see too much of a problem before us. We see the impossible Twice in the passage, in, in chapter 4, in verse 3 and verse 13, we're told that the enemy has 900 chariots fitted with iron, which really represents military might. I mean, this is the, the, the pinnacle of technological warfare of their time. Chariots, meaning they're fast, it's got, it's got horses. Iron means it's, in, it's impenetrable. They they can cut through any defense, any wall. It will be dumb to try to fight that. It will not be a fair fight. It's suicide. It's mentioned twice because the author is trying to highlight the impossible. They want you to feel what they must be feeling. That if you're an Israelite soldier facing the battlefield, it's like you're going against tanks. They're scared. They're feeling hopeless. And you cannot blame them that they are filled with doubt and fear. And in the same way, it's times like this when we obviously find it so hard to trust in God. With the the problem before us, whatever it is, all that we can see is how things are about to get worse, that there is no hope, and death is basically inevitable. But see, it is when the problem before us just seems hopeless. It is is also when the power of God actually shines through. See, if you read through the chapter... Through the chapter again, you will see that the Israelites are almost not doing anything aside from showing up. That it is really God doing all the work. Verse 7, God says, I will give them into your hands. Verse 9, the Lord will deliver Sisera. Verse 14, the Lord has given Sisera into your hands and he has gone before you, he went ahead before you. Verse 23, it ends by saying, On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, you probably didn't notice that because, again, the lesson here, the more we focus on our problem, the less we see of God. The more we see the the enormity of the mountain, the less we see the omnipotence and the magnitude of what God can do. Or the more we keep our eyes on the impossible task ahead, the more we don't see God who can do the impossible in our lives. It's not that God is absent or incapable, but our perception is clouded by the enormity of the obstacle that is ahead of us. Remember um, Peter walking on water? He wasn't faithless, he was was the only one who had enough faith to try it. But the New Testament says as soon as he he focused on, on on the waves and the water around him, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, that he started to sink. He allowed fear to control him and forgot about the very person who called him who can control the wind and created the sea. See, in chapter 4... The problem is being highlighted, but in chapter 5, we didn't read it, but the work of God, the person of God is being remembered in Deborah's uh, song of praise. Deborah says, if you just jump to chapter 5 and from verse 4, it says, When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. He's remembered. He's highlighted. It's not, it's not just the Israelites going to war by themselves. God, it says, is marching with them. The Canaanites have iron chariots. The Israelites have God by their side. That in their weakness against a big adversity, God is with them to win the battle for them. And isn't this the same God that we see in the new Testament, as the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter one, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It is almost saying that God loves the underdog. He loves breaking human expectations to show his sovereignty over circumstances that seems to be hopeless and impossible that our weakness and and the impossibility of the situation is the very stage upon which God chooses to display His power and His glory. It's not about the magnitude of the problem, but keep your eyes on the magnitude of God. And I think it's fine to be afraid. It's, It's okay to worry. It's human nature but it's not okay to be, to, as a Christian, to dwell on our fear and to r- remain focused on our problem without turning to God who is stronger and wiser and sovereign over all our problems, no matter how impossible it might seem. And I'm sure, I'm sure that some of you here are facing that same kind of battlefield and feeling the same way as the Israelites were feeling as they face, as you face the mountains or the problems that you have in your life right now. And maybe you're thinking, there's no way out of this. There's no way I can win. There's nothing good coming out of this. Don't forget the God who is marching, not just with you, but before you. Don't let it paralyze you don't you know be like deborah to allow it to be the reason for you to be looking back one day and giving all the praises back to god the god who is bigger than your enemy the god who is wiser than your impossible situation the god who can do all things for our good and his glory we need to rely upon and trust in his word and promises for us which leads us our second problem, the way that we hear from God, right? The second obstacle that often often prevents us from putting our trust uh, in God is the way that God speaks. Uh, See, in Judges 4, again, God speaks to Deborah, who then had to convey the message back to Barak. So Deborah is the messenger. She's the middle person, uh, which made me question, again, as a skeptic, that is it more logical, for God to speak directly to Barak. Now, wouldn't that be better? If God spoke directly to Barak, I mean, he would have more confidence and, and faith to fight the battle. But instead, he gets Deborah the prophet. And I don't want to be, I don't want to sound sexist here, but as you know, there are very few women prophets in the Old Testament. And, you know, as, as women, uh, sorry, uh, you know, as we know, like women back in the ancient times are, are often not regarded highly. So just imagine Barak getting a message from God but through Deborah that he will lead an army with 900 chariots against the the Canaanites. How challenging is it for Barak to accept that message? And again, in the same way, often we we struggle to, to put our trust in God, not because of the message, but often because of the way the message is given to us. Because... I think we we like to look for the the extraordinary means. We want to hear a voice from heaven, a miraculous sign, or a supernatural intervention somehow from God. We want a direct and more obvious encounter with God. Something grand, something inspiring that leaves no room for doubt that it is God speaking to us. So we, we yearn for a burning bush. We were looking for some parted seas for a thunderous voice coming down from heaven or a blinding light, maybe like Paul on his way to Damascus. But instead, what do we get? How, how do we hear from God? We're, We're given a book. We're given a Bible to read. Today you get a preacher with a weird accent and you're wondering, is this God speaking? See, God's voice often comes through ordinary means in our lives. A quiet daily devotion in the morning, a Christian Christian radio on the way to work, a counsel from a friend over coffee, a lesson from a Bible study, a correction from a parent, we want signs and wonders, but often we hear from a person used by God through whom God speaks and chooses to, chooses to speak um, from. So just as he spoke to Barak through Deborah, God continues to speak to us today through his people. And that's why I think we often fail to hear and to trust. Now, you might still be thinking, but why, why, why doesn't God make himself... Clearer, more obvious. Why, why use the ordinary when the, ox, the, when the extraordinary method will, will be a lot better? Now, the Bible doesn't give us a, a straight answer, but here's what the Bible tells us. Look at the pattern. Again, God uses Deborah to speak to Barak, God uses Moses to speak to the Israelites and to Pharaoh. Remember, God repeatedly says to Pharaoh, Let my people go. Now, wouldn't it be better if God spoke directly to Pharaoh? God used prophets throughout the Old Testament to speak to kings and rulers and his people. And there's always, always a, a messenger or a mediator in between. And then in the New Testament, we're told this in, in Hebrew 1. That in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom all, also he made the universe. Now, we don't know why God doesn't speak to us now with thunder and and an army of angels or whatever extraordinary means. But we are told that God reveals himself through his appointed messenger. And now he has given his final revelation through his son. And so the Christian claim is that everything that we need to know about God and what he has done to us is given to us through the spoken word in the Old Testament and his, and his son, Jesus Christ, as a flesh incarnate, as a word becoming flesh, that, that is recorded now in the New Testament. That everything you need to find meaning and purpose in life, everything that you need to, to, to know how to be reconciled back to God, everything that you need to know about how to live your, your life in faith and obedience, is given to us in his word. Now again, if you're, if you're here today, and you're, maybe you're not a believer, and you're and you're thinking, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with that answer. Again, it's fine. I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm a big skeptic myself. But here's the deal. Here's what I want you to at least, at least consider. You know that everyone really live, you know, lives their lives in, in some sort of faith, right? For example, on a very, on uh, a very basic level, um, you had to believe that you when you when you drove here this morning that people are going to follow the rules, right? That somehow, that you believe that the oncoming traffic will stick to their lane, and they will follow the rules, and they will not drive straight to you. or Maybe when you jump on a plane, like you have faith that the person flying that you've never met actually knows what they're doing, right? Even though you have not met them before. So it's, there's some sort of faith. Uh, or when you go to the dentist, and when you open your mouth, you have to trust that the person actually has the credentials to, to fiddle with your vulnerable gums, Right? it's it's faith without you knowing if they actually studied medicine or not everyone has to live by faith that's that's in a small scale see often we 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 just live our lives without verifying the facts and the truth now on a bigger scale if you're not a Christian again if you're if you're an atheist and you might say you know I don't I don't believe in God because there's no clear verifiable Evidence for me that he actually exists. There's no clear proof that I can see an experience for myself. Therefore he cannot be real But see you can turn that question the other way around and let me ask you what evidence? Do you have that God doesn't exist? I mean Archaeology cannot answer that you might say it was evidence of evolution but see the Bible doesn't speak against animals evolving and adapting to the environment Astrophysics gives a lot of theory of the, of the origin of the universe, but it's not, it's not completely verifiable. Like, have you seen, have you been through a black hole? There's no concrete evidence of the Big Bang that an explosion of energy came from an unknown source. It's a theory. And the biggest problem science tells us, science can tell you what is, right? It doesn't, you know, it tells you what, what's going on, but it doesn't tell you what it ought to be. It cannot answer the question of morality, what's right and wrong, and it doesn't answer the question of meaning, of why we're here. It might answer the question of how things work, but it doesn't answer the why. So everyone has to believe in some sort of a system that allows you to answer where we came from, what we're meant to be doing, what is right and wrong, and where we are heading. Because all of us has some sort of of belief system that enables us to function in life by answering those questions. And I think out of all the major religions, Christianity is the only religion where you can research and try to verify for yourself the authenticity of the claim because you are given a book that is based on historical account. Buddhism doesn't do that. It's a bunch of of teachings that doesn't give you if you can actually verify the facts. Even Islam cannot be fully verified. And so if if you're a big skeptic like me, the least you can do is try to research for yourself. And do not easily discount the magnitude of the Christian claim. Because as C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if it's false, if it's not true, then there's no importance. But if it's true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Or in other words, if you turn that around, it's saying that if atheism is true, right, then it's not that important if it's true. Because you might waste your life in religion now, but once you die, you won't even know that you wasted your life because your consciousness is gone. But if Christianity is true then you will have an eternity of regret. The least you can do now is make an informed decision for yourself. Listen to how God speaks to you in his word. Verify the claims and the promises for yourself. Now, lastly, lastly, the reason why it's so hard to put a trust in God is because a lot of times we don't even realize he's at work. See, in the same way that we look at the extraordinary voice we also look for science and evidence that god is doing something in our lives and if if we can't see a clear evidence that god is doing something we often think that he's not there see Barak was told in verse 9 that the lord will deliver sisera into the hands of a woman now Barak might have accepted that, He might be thinking, that's fine, I won't be the, I won't be the homecoming hero, I won't, have the, the, I won't be the center of the, of the ticket parade when we get back. But I assume that he was still expecting some sort of, of, of battle with Sisera, right? Two commanders fighting each other. But instead, when you think of it, Sisera really died quietly. I mean, it was, it, it, he died in a funny way, but there was no exciting battle, there was no grand finale in fact it is so weird that the whole battle scene is condensed in one verse verse 15 right remember you think that there's going to be a big battle there's 900 iron chariots but look at how the fight is described at Barak's advance it's it's the lord it's god routed sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword and sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot that was it that that was the entire battle scene Nothing exciting, just God doing the work and the commander running away. And as we know, what happened next is that we we read that Caesar went inside of a tent of an ally whom he thought he could trust. He asked for water, she gave him milk, she tucked him in bed, and she smashed his head in. There was no witnesses, there was no fight scenes. There were no big weapons, no, there's no big heroes, just a tired, sleepy guy killed by a woman that lied to him. I mean, imagine when the soldiers returned home from battle, people will be asking, so what happened? Did you, did, how did you match the iron chariots? Did you, did you had a plan that, that really, you know, threw him out? Right? Did, did you go hand-to-hand combat with Cicero the commander? Tell us the story, we, we want details. And all they can say is, we're not so sure, but somehow we won." And we heard Cicero died in the tent asleep. See, see God doesn't bring in a bigger army. He doesn't send billions of dollars to improve defense. He doesn't bring in Rambo to save. And sometimes he does to surprise us. I mean, that's the whole point of Judges. It's showing us that God can do and use anyone. But most of the time, he does it quietly and subtly in the most unconventional and unexpected ways. And that's why throughout the Bible, we see people facing God's judgment and wrath, but there's no fire in heaven consuming them. Again, in some cases there are, but often it is through the simple and subtle ways, him at work. That it's evidence that he doesn't, he doesn't always show up on a big scale. He, he is involved in the small and the personal things in our lives. He's involved in the intimate things in our lives, and he gets us involved with him. He surprises us of how he can solve things without making a big spectacle out of it. Which, when I was thinking of this point, made me really think of some um, some modern uh, similarities. I was one, you know, like I was thinking, like, I mean, do you know, like, how, how did Hitler die? Right? How, how did one of the most vicious and evil dictators in the world die? Was he bombed with the most advanced nuclear warfare? Was he taken out by the Navy SEALs? See, Adolf Hitler died quietly in a bunker, a gun in his head, and it was almost unsatisfying hearing that. Joseph Stalin, one of the most ruthless leaders of the Soviet Union, caused millions of deaths death through famine and political persecution, died... Of brain hemorrhaging chairman Mao of China died of Parkinson's disease Pol Pot of Cambodia who killed basically a quarter of Cambodia died of a heart attack now can it be that this is God's justice and mercy in action see these are not the kind of resolution that we want and expect but it is the simple and subtle ways that God is often at work just because you don't see it it doesn't mean god is not acting that the silence of god doesn't mean the absence of god don't lose your trust and your hope just because it doesn't make sense to you and so similarly in our own lives god often works in ways that we don't we don't expect and we're not and therefore we're not looking Right? We might think that it's just coincidence, or we might think it's an accident, or maybe it's caused by ourselves, by our own, by our own hard work. Again, he may choose to answer our prayers right, in, way, you know, in ways that seems ordinary or insignificant, yet it is in the quiet moment of, of our everyday lives that, you know, that he acts, that it is in the mundane things of life that he reveals that he is at work. And so maybe, again, you might be struggling with something right now and struggling to see whether God is at work. You don't see him acting in your life. You don't hear him answering your prayers. And, you know, it's it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to, to question God. It's okay to confront God. But do not ever think that God is not doing anything. Most of the time, the way God works does not make sense to us. Just because he is silent, he doesn't mean that he is absent. And here's another application of this. You know, see, we've, we've been talking about this, this cycle uh, in Judges. That every time, right, that every time the, the, the Israelites have years of prosperity and peace, they tend to forget God, right? They get too comfortable, and so they start to entertain themselves with other things and other beliefs, and they forget what God has done and who God is and what God is doing in their lives. And I think in the same way, when everything in our lives are going well, I believe that is when we think that God is really not doing much, right? We, we tend to think that, you know, maybe it's, we have this peace, we have this prosperity, we have this security in our lives because we have earned it. It's something that we have worked for. But see, the warning for us is don't you ever think that your days of peace is a result of your work. As we heard in previous weeks, don't get complacent thinking that you'll be fine and you don't need God. When the matter of the fact is, he is always at work in our lives to sustain it. Now, how do we know we can actually trust God? How can we be sure that, there, that he is at work, that he understands and overcomes what we're going through? Here's how. Because one of our biggest problems, one of our biggest adversity, right? is always has been solved yet he defeated sin right he acted justly and mercifully by dying on the cross and he has defeated death by coming back to life that's why in romans chapter 8 the apostle paul said this he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us or solve all of all of our problems For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's saying that if God is willing to do that for you, giving His Son for you, why would you doubt everything else in your life? The cross is a reminder for us that if God is willing to give up the very thing that He loved, why would you ever doubt his love for you Now, again i don't know what you're going through today this week this month this year already and i don't know how it will end maybe you won't get what you're hoping for maybe you won't get what you've been praying for but i can guarantee you that if you are a believer and you're a follower of jesus christ that he will do everything in order to bring you back to where you're meant to be resting in his love and his presence Satisfied in him and him alone. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for, for your word, for, for speaking to us. Though we, we find uh, the messenger, the, the method of, of how you speak to us kind of dull and, and, not as, and not as fascinating or, or miraculous. But Lord, allow us to hear you. Lord, help us in, in our daily struggles. Help us to, to see that you are at work. Help us to see that you are sustaining our lives. And so help us to keep our eyes focused on you and not on the problem that we're facing this week or, or in our lives right now. Father, help us to turn to the cross to see the, the, the magnitude of your love and your power, that if you're willing to do that for us, anything else, everything else will be secondary to 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 the problem of our sin and the problem of our death so lord we thank you for our for our savior and we pray now that we will keep him in the center of our lives this we pray in his name amen